Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. You gonna pick that up? Ugh, I answered it the last four times. It's that Lorraine Fuller. She's been calling all day. Oh, come on. Fine, I got it. Los Angeles Police. Officer Daniel speaking. Yes, hi. I, I, I'm calling about Bobby Fuller. He left last night and he's still not home. Mrs. Fuller, like we already said, Bobby probably just did some partying. He'll be back eventually. Pardon me, officer. It's not like my son to just take off like that. When he left, he said he'd be right back. I know it might be hard to accept, but Bobby is a rock star. Sometimes rock stars don't come home at night. Not my Bobby. Oh, wait. The car's back in the driveway. That's strange. See? Just like we said, Mrs. Fuller. No. Oh, God, Bobby. Bobby! What is it? Talk to me. He's been beaten. He isn't moving. Bobby, wake up! Wake up! Hello? Hello? Mrs. Fuller! (sighs) Don't worry. She'll call back in a few minutes. We need to get to Bobby Fuller's place. Now! This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on Bobby Fuller. This week, we'll cover musician Bobby Fuller's life and brutal death. Next week, we'll uncover who might have been responsible. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Bobby Fuller was born October 22, 1942, in Goose Creek, Texas. For his parents, Lorraine and Lawson Fuller, Bobby's birth was their second chance. Lorraine had recently fled an abusive marriage in El Paso, and Lawson had already lost a child in an automotive accident. Bobby was the beginning of a beautiful new chapter for the Fuller family. They had another boy, Randall, two years later, and the Fullers suddenly found themselves with a packed house. From the beginning, Randy and Bobby had a tight bond. 
As they grew up, the boys quickly developed a penchant for trouble. They may have learned their mischievous side from their stepbrother, Jack, Lorraine's son from her first marriage. The older boy always found himself spending more time in the principal's office than the classroom. And so, in hopes of finding a fresh start, the fathers packed up and left Texas for Farmington, New Mexico in 1952. This was where 10-year-old Bobby first discovered music. He'd listened to his mother Lorraine play the piano for his whole life. And now, he decided to take up the instrument himself. Bobby took to the piano like a fish to water. He'd sit at the keys for hours, coming up with new songs and practicing old ones. Whenever Mr. and Mrs. Fuller had guests over, Bobby became the entertainment. I taught him this one. Is that right? I don't remember you playing this. Well, I didn't play it like this. Soon, Bobby's younger brother, Randy, caught the musical bug, too, and he became Bobby's follow-up act. In 1954, Lawson's job transferred him to Salt Lake City, Utah, so the family packed up and moved again, and the boys used their musical talents to find friends in the new city. For 13-year-old Bobby, it was especially easy. As a freshman in high school, he picked up the drums and quickly rose to the top of the Salt Lake City music scene. Soon, Bobby's reputation as a drummer began to spread. Even though Bobby was barely a teen, people began booking him for shows all over Salt Lake City, including a regular gig at a local beatnik club. Bobby knew the idea of playing at a beatnik club wasn't going to go over well with his father, so he lied and said he was playing at a coffee shop. But it didn't take long before Lawson learned the truth. No son of mine is going to be some... Beatnik. Dad! Oh, come on, Lawson. They've hired him for a show. We should be proud. Proud? That he's entertaining junkies in a club? I don't think so. Too much of that, and our boy is going to turn into some kind of drifter. It's my life. I'm 13 now, and I can make my own decisions. Think again. While you're living under my house, you'll be living under my rules. No son of mine will be a goddamn nightclub musician. Of course, Bobby's parents' subjections only made him more secretive about his performances. They had no idea how well he was thriving in his new life as a musician. The same could not be said about Bobby's stepbrother, Jack. After flunking out of school, Jack had joined the Navy. His time in the service was also short-lived, as he was honorably discharged in 1947. By the time the Fullers were in Salt Lake City, Jack had fallen back into trouble. He had to spend a few months at a mental institution to avoid jail time. After being released, Jack didn't have many chances left. He approached his stepfather, Lawson, about working with him in the oil fields. Begrudgingly, Lawson put Jack to work. Perhaps it was because he wanted to do something nice for his wife to soften the blow he was about to deliver. Oh, Lawson, you're home. I was just about to get dinner started, but I figured we should talk about Jack. Actually, I have something I need to talk to you about first. What is it? No. You're not moving us again, are you? I'm sorry, Lorraine. Where now? Arizona? New Mexico again? Texas. Lawson, no. El Paso. Lawson, I... 
I, I can't go back there, Lawson. You know I can't. We don't really have a choice. Lorraine fled El Paso in the early 1930s to escape her abusive husband. She hadn't been back since, but El Paso was where Lawson's new job was, so that's where they went. The family pulled into their new city in 1956. It was a much tougher transition than their past moves. Jack started taking regular trips over the Mexico border to party in Juarez. And the 14-year-old Bobby Fuller struggled to keep his grades up at his new school. But once again, he found his place in the local music scene. Only six months after the family moved to El Paso, Bobby entered a drumming competition at his high school. The competition began with a few seniors trading drum fills. They were good, but they weren't great. Bobby watched patiently. Finally, when there seemed to be an opening in the competition, Bobby asked to have a turn. The older boys scoffed at the new boy, but reluctantly they handed over the sticks. The seniors looked on in awe. Bobby was mesmerizing. It didn't take the boy long to start finding gigs as a replacement drummer for bands around the city. Eventually, he started to get recognized by some of the El Paso scene's local celebrities, including Jim Reese. Reese was a young veteran of the Texas rock and roll scene. While Reese's bread and butter was lead guitar, in the 1950s, Reese was also the pianist for a local band called The Counts. In El Paso, The Counts were huge, but the band never managed to make it outside their hometown. By the late 1950s, the Counts broke up and Jim recruited his friend Dalton Powell for a new band called the Embers. The Embers needed a drummer and Jim Reese knew just the person to ask. Nice show you did out there. You're not bad on the sticks. (laughs) Thank you kindly. I said not bad. I didn't say good. Excuse me? I know you. You're part of the Counts. I'd like to see your drummer try to- The counts are over. I got a new band. You ever heard of The Embers? Can't say I have. Well, you have now. We have a practice tomorrow afternoon. If you're free, maybe you should drop by. Bobby was only 17 when he started lighting up the El Paso scene with The Embers in 1961. But just as Bobby's music career seemed like it was taking off, a tragedy hit the Fuller household that would change his life forever. Coming up, we'll look at Bobby's journey to stardom and the events that led up to his mysterious death. Hi, listeners. Here's a show I think you'll enjoy. When it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales, seemingly meant to be, Others defy the odds to achieve happily ever after. In Our Love Story, the new Spotify original from ParCast, you'll discover the many pathways to love as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, Our Love Story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. 
Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now back to the story. By 1961, Bobby Fuller was getting a crash course in the El Paso rock scene as the drummer for the Embers. Back at home, his family life had finally calmed down. His father's job had finally stabilized, and it seemed like the years of moving were behind them. Unfortunately, the period of calm wouldn't last. February 5th, 1961 was supposed to be just another day for the Fullers. The boys went to school and Lawson went to work. By the time Lawson got home, Lorraine had dinner waiting for them on the table. But one member of the family didn't make it home on time that evening. Bobby's stepbrother, Jack. And as the hours ticked by, Lorraine got worried. Lawson and Bobby tried to reassure Lorraine that Jack was fine. He was probably just off partying again in Juarez, but Lorraine had a bad feeling that she just couldn't shake. By the time the family went to sleep, Jack still hadn't returned. That night, Lorraine had a dream. According to her, she was visited by Jack's ghost. The spirit had a message for her. They got me in Juarez, Mom. I don't know what happened. My head. My head. When Lorraine woke up the next morning, Jack's bed was still empty. Lawson and the boys started to worry as well. The family called all of Jack's friends and checked every jail in Juarez. Nobody had seen him. After a few tense days, the family finally decided to file a missing persons report with the El Paso Police Department. It was months before they'd find out what happened. In the spring of 1961, Mrs. Fuller's worst fears were confirmed. The Mexican police finally located Jack's car with a 21-year-old named Roy Handy behind the wheel. Roy swore that Jack gave him the car, but that wasn't like Jack at all. The Juarez police arrested Roy, but they couldn't get him to open up. And so, in a highly controversial move, they agreed to let Lawson Fuller himself speak to the boy. I'm telling you, he gave me the car, then left. That's the thing, Roy. He wouldn't do that. He wouldn't let anyone touch his car. Why does everybody always think I'm lying? Look, I know your type. (laughs) I raised your type. You don't know me at all. I know that despite his faults, despite his mistakes, Jack wanted to do the right thing. I think you want to do the right thing, too, don't you? I don't know. Look, Roy... I already know you're lying, and I don't care about it. The only thing I care about is Jack's mother. She's worried sick. Hell, she knows he's probably dead. We all do. We just want some peace. Can't you give a grieving mother some peace? Can't you do that for us? Uh, Okay, there's this reservation. It's not far from here. That's where you'll find him. 
Authorities found Jack's body exactly where Roy told them to look. He'd been shot three times. His body was almost unrecognizable from the decay. Lorraine Fuller fell into a deep depression over the loss of her son. She began sleeping all day. At night, she'd lie awake, crying for Jack. Finally, Lawson decided he had to do something about it, so he signed his wife up for electroshock therapy. As his home life disintegrated, Bobby threw himself deeper into his music. The Embers were playing steady shows, but no record companies would sign them, so Bobby decided to take matters into his own hands. He saved up money from all his gigs and started building his own personal recording studio inside the Fuller house. His younger brother Randy was right there to help out. Randy needed some direction in his life. He'd flunked out of school in his early teens and had a baby on the way by the time he was 16. If he didn't figure things out soon, he'd wind up working at the same oil company as his father. Luckily for Randy, Bobby needed a bassist. And Randy was up for the challenge. In mid-1962, Randy took up the mantle as Bobby's full-time bass player. Wherever Bobby played and whenever he recorded, Randy would be right behind him, plucking a bass line and keeping rhythm. Randy was the missing piece that brought Bobby's whole band together. By the time Bobby turned 18, he was a local celebrity. And on March 30th, 1962... He sat down for his first interview. Yeah, so it's always been my dream to visit Easter Island. Those big statues look crazy. Which reminds me, if I had to go to a deserted island and could only take one movie, it would definitely be Spartacus. Oh Man, it'd be cool to be in a movie. But I'm not much of an actor. I'll tell you what, though. I'm mean at chess and water skiing. (laughs) And music, of course. I'm sorry, I've never been interviewed. I guess I'm rambling. What was the question again? I asked what was next for Bobby Fuller. Oh, oh, well, we've got a new single. Uh, It's coming out in two weeks. Soon, recording studios around the Southwest started showing interest in Bobby and his band. But there was only one studio that was good enough for Bobby. Yucca Records in New Mexico. Yucca was run by Norman Petty, who had worked with Buddy Holly when he was an up-and-coming Texas musician. To Bobby, Buddy Holly was more than a musical influence. He was his hero. Bobby would try and copy Holly at every chance he could, and that meant working with Petty. So Bobby hauled the band and their equipment out to New Mexico to record at Yucca. The song that they recorded with Petty wasn't much of a success, but the experience left a lasting impression on Bobby Fuller. Bobby made it a point to memorize the equipment and studio dimensions that Petty had used. When he got back to El Paso, he set out to turn his own home studio into an exact replica of Yucca. He found all the same equipment that Petty had and outfitted his living room with the same padding. Soon, it started to feel like Bobby wasn't recording in his family's house anymore. It felt like his family was living inside Bobby's studio. When 1963 came around, the band decided that they were done recording and they wanted to tour. But at this point, it was clear that Bobby was the star. So they called themselves Bobby Fuller and his combo and headed out on a full tour of the Southwest. After the tour, the band members returned to El Paso, but the Texas town felt smaller than when they left. 
They were ready to take the band to the next level, so Bobby and Randy headed to L.A. In El Paso, Bobby and Randy were big-time musicians, but when they made it to L.A., they quickly realized that they were small fish again. They had to take a small job playing surf music at a hotel to pay their rent. But what they really wanted was a record deal. Once they got settled in California, Bobby wrote to his parents, asking them to ship him his demo tapes. As soon as they came in the mail, Bobby and Randy headed out to drop the demos at every record label they could. But no one would even listen to the tapes, let alone give them a deal. At least, not until they headed to Delphi. Please, if you could just put the tape on Mr. Keene's desk. I'm sorry, boys. It doesn't work that way. What if President Lincoln asked politely? (laughs) It's time to go, boys. Karen, I'm out for a bite. Hold my calls. Yes, sir, Mr. Keene. Wait, uh, excuse me. Are you Bob Keene? The Bob Keene? What's it to you? I'm Bobby Fuller, and I've come from El Paso with a new sound that's the best thing you've heard since Buddy Holly. Maybe if you need some lunch company? Only if you're buying. Bobby convinced Keene to listen to their demos, and he was impressed. But Keene told him he didn't have a hit, and if he wanted a record deal, he needed one. Come back in a year. Once you've figured out your sound, then we'll talk. Thanks, Mr. Keene. We'll be back. Bobby and Randy returned to El Paso to keep working on their sound. But the trip out west had changed Bobby. He decided that he really wanted to record his own music, with or without a label. And he wanted to do it right there in El Paso. Bobby knew that playing shows was a big part of that. But he was tired of aimlessly bouncing from one small venue to another. If he was going to make a mark in El Paso he had to start thinking bigger. And so, on November 22nd, 1963, Bobby opened up his own teen club called The Rendezvous. His band, now called The Fanatics, would play four nights a week. The venue became the most popular teenage venue in the Southwest, practically overnight. Unfortunately, keeping a venue up and running turned out to be a little more expensive than Bobby first thought. He began to nickel and dime the rest of his band, cut corners, and made it a habit to pay rent late. Eventually, he stopped paying rent at all, and on July 18, 1964, only eight months after opening its doors, the rendezvous was forced to close down. Without a venue, Bobby turned his focus back to recording. In the summer of 1964, Randy had an idea. They should do a cover of the song I Fought the Law, originally written by Sonny Curtis. Bobby loved the idea. Curtis was one of Buddy Holly's friends and bandmates, after all. So he called in Jim and Dalton to back them up. The recording turned out better than anyone could have hoped. Excited, Bobby decided to start his own record label. He called it Exeter 127. Unfortunately, the label quickly went the same way as his teen club. Bobby ran out of money, and he was forced to go back on tour to support himself and his bandmates. And at one of their first stops in Carlsbad, New Mexico, their luck turned from bad to worse. And so I told her, Honey, I'm playing all night. Don't stop dancing on my accord. (laughs) Does anyone have a light? 
Hey, who left the van's doors open? What are you talking about? Oh no. Oh my god, our gear! It's all gone! All of the equipment Bobby had spent so long accumulating, amps, guitars, reverb units, had been stolen. Bobby Fuller was broke. His club was dead, his record label had failed, and now he had lost all his musical gear in one terrible afternoon. The band was out of options. But suddenly, his mind went back to Bob Keane at Delphi Records. Maybe the band had come far enough in the past year to finally earn them a record deal. Bobby hoped so. It was now or never. So the band left El Paso and headed back out west. Coming up, Bobby Fuller's dreams finally come true. Until the day they turn into a nightmare. Now back to the story. 22-year-old musician Bobby Fuller had become a local legend in Texas and earned the title the Rock and Roll King of the Southwest. But a string of bad luck forced him and his bandmates to make a big decision. In early 1965, they headed west to try to make it big in L.A. one more time. Unfortunately, the Delphi records that had promised them a record deal in 1963 had changed dramatically in the past two years. The L.A. music scene was completely different. Surf music was out, the British invasion was in, and Bob Keane's label was struggling to keep up. Delphi was on the verge of going under. But Keane's misfortune was Bobby Fuller's opportunity. Desperate, Keane signed Bobby Fuller and his band, but it quickly became apparent that L.A. had a much different way of doing things. Bob Keane was a master of promotion and buzz. He tried everything to get Bobby Fuller to make a mark in the crowded music scene. But Jim Reese and the rest of the band felt like Keane's sales gimmicks just distracted from the music. Fellas, fellas, have I got an opportunity for you. Not now. We're in the middle of recording. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. What is it, Mr. Keene? Have you boys ever heard of the show Shindig? It's a new rock and roll television show that I think you'd be perfect for. Have you ever heard of playing music? Cool it, Jim. Did you book us a spot on the show? Well, not yet, but I think we've got a shot. All we have to do is change the band's name to the Shindigs. If you're named after the show, they'll practically have to hire you. Don't you see? I told you, Bobby. He's got nothing. I thought you boys said you'd do anything to make it. Well, this is anything. Bobby didn't like the gimmicks any more than the rest of the band. Yet, he knew they needed to make changes if they were going to make it big. As such... Bobby agreed to rename the band. But Keane's plan didn't even work. The band never got a spot on the TV show. With that, Bobby decided to give up on the gimmicks once and for all. The band would be called the Bobby Fuller Four from then on. Later that same year, the Bobby Fuller Four started to gain momentum around L.A. Their first two singles, Take My Word and She's My Girl, started appearing on California radio, and their next song, Let Her Dance, became a bona fide hit in July of 1965. Unfortunately, Bobby never saw a dime from its success. 
The record label had already sold the rights to Let Her Dance in an effort to make a little fast cash. But when the song blew up, the label realized its mistake. Fortunately, Bobby had something even better in store. In the summer of 1965, the Bobby Fuller Four released I Fought the Law, the old cover that Randy suggested all the way back in El Paso. And suddenly, Bobby's life changed forever. The song quickly became the most requested song at their shows. Then it started appearing on local L.A. radio stations. Within a month, I Fought the Law was number nine on the Billboard Top 100. Suddenly, the Bobby Fuller Four were a red-hot band. They performed at sold-out venues and began appearing on nationwide TV shows, even without changing their name. Even George Harrison of the Beatles said that Bobby Fuller was one of his favorite bands. When they headed out on tour again, the crowds were bigger than they could have possibly imagined. It was everything that Bobby had dreamed of. But something about it still didn't feel quite right. Halfway through the tour, the band took a break in Los Angeles to record a new song. Bob Keane wanted to release a record as quickly as possible so it could coincide with the second half of the tour. Bobby wasn't so sure about Keane's song choice, though. The single, The Magic Touch, wasn't in Bobby's Southwestern style. It was a Motown-inspired single that leaned heavily on overdubs that the band couldn't replicate live. Bobby reluctantly recorded it, but once he heard the song, he asked Keane not to release it. But Keane released it anyway. In early 1966, The Magic Touch premiered without Bobby's permission. The Bobby Fuller Four were furious. Finally, they decided they'd had enough. The band decided that, fame or no, this tour would be their last. They were going to break up when they made it back to L.A. The band didn't know that their label had gone through some major changes while they were on the road. The record label had merged with another company to form a new company called Privilege Distribution. Suddenly, Privilege owned the worldwide rights to the Bobby Fuller Four. In April of 1966, Privilege hired a man named Ron Rosler to be the general manager of the company. At the time, Rosler was already working at a label called Roulette Records, which was owned by a notorious executive named Morris Levy. Levy was well-known around the music world as a shark and a cutthroat businessman. And now, thanks to his connections with Privilege, he owned the Bobby Fuller Four. Awfully nice club you've got here, Mr. Levy. Oh, Bobby, you don't know the half of it. (laughs) But I called you here to talk business. So, let's talk. Not to be rude, but I don't think we have any business to talk about. That's where you're wrong. You're signed with me now. I appreciate the offer, but we already have a record deal, and... You've got it all wrong. I'm not asking, I'm telling. I already acquired the rights to your music. This is just a courtesy call. But I think this could be a very mutually beneficial relationship, if you let it. How's that? That's a lot of money. (laughs) But Mr. Levy, sir, the band, we've decided to break up. 
<laughs> break up. I'll tell you when you break up. News of their breakup did not go over well when the band returned to L.A. Bobby Fuller was still under contract, after all, but Bobby wanted out. He wanted the creative freedom that he used to have in El Paso. He decided to move his mother out to California to live with him. Maybe together they could figure out a path forward for his career. But there would be no path forward. On the evening of July 17, 1966, Lorraine Fuller said goodbye to Bobby as he headed out for the night. It would be the last time she'd see him alive. Bobby, is that you? Go back to bed, Mom. Where are you going? Don't worry about it. You shouldn't be up. (sighs) But it's so late. I'll be right back. Don't wait up. Bobby drove off in his car and Lorraine went back to sleep. When she awoke the next morning, her son was still gone. Lorraine immediately started to worry. She had already gone through this with Jack once before. That afternoon, Lorraine got a call from Bobby's label. They told her that Bobby had missed an important meeting. Something was wrong. Lorraine began calling the police over and over, but they were no help. They told her to calm down and wait. Her son would likely be home soon. Late in the evening of July 18, 1966, Lorraine's wait came to an abrupt end. She noticed that Bobby's car was back in the driveway, and so it seemed was he. But when she went out to talk to him, she came face to face with her worst fear. Bobby was dead. His lifeless body sat up in the driver's seat, bloodied, bruised, and doused in gasoline. It seemed Bobby Fuller had fought someone, and whoever it was, they had won. Next week, we'll look into who could have been responsible for Bobby Fuller's death and the potential police cover-up that followed the murder. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Bobby Fuller's mysterious death. For more information on Bobby Fuller, amongst the many sources we used, we found I Fought the Law, The Life and Strange Death of Bobby Fuller by Miriam Lina and Randall Fuller, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Frank Spiro, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, Eddie Lee, K.G. Tang, and Rebecca Thomas. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Remember to follow the newest Spotify original from Parcast, Our Love Story. Every Tuesday, catch an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance. 
with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.